Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised. We are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick. Run. We love aliens. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc., the spookiest podcast for all of October. Ooh. Oh my god, is there a ghost in here? Oh yeah. There's about to be. <laughs> Uh-oh, spooky. Uh-oh. I'm not ready for this, I don't think. You might not be. I'm um, not ready to be scared. That's okay. Well, the good news is um, I have a lot of business. I'm Maggie, and I'm scared. <laughs> and I'm Kayla, and it's going to be my fault. <laughs> um, first of all, you sneak. I came home to my house, and there was a package on my doorstep mm-hmm. that has... <laughs> first of all, let me describe it for you. It's an open FedEx package. <laughs> pre-opened to save me the hassle <laughs> addressed to her her to Kayla and it has two post-it notes on it that are orange one says do not open until recording in the style of my my last package and the other one has a jack-o'-lantern face on it so you know it's spooky you're welcome that's the whole present Thanks. there's nothing in there there's something in here I can feel it do you want to open it now is it time mm-hmm Grim grinning ghosts come out to socialize. <laughs> <gasps> oh my god, it's literally a ghost. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I love this for me. We have matching ones. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I can't wait to wear this. It's a shirt. You have to put it on now for this episode. With a drawing of a ghost on it that says ghost. You have to wear it now. Okay, I will. Go change. I'm going to change too. Okay, Great. ready? Be right back. Be right back. <laughs> we look so spooky. Yay. Thank you for my gift. I love it. Happy spooky. It's so spooky. Was this to butter me up because you know you're going to scare me and I'm going to be mad about it? 100%. Great. Um, okay. Do you have any business? Mm-mm. I have a couple businesses. Okay. So my first one is I have to give a shout out to the Netherlands nice that's it shout out to the netherlands i do represent the vanda blank crew it's bunt yeah but other people are (laughs) vandas of other things i know i know um another one is that i have a couple pieces of information for you about past questions we've asked and didn't know the answer to 
I'm thrilled. So this first one comes from a listener named Leonay, I think is how you pronounce her name. I'm sorry I didn't ask you, but I forgot to go back on Instagram. Leonay says, I recently listened to the Edgar Allan Poe episode where you guys were wondering why rabies causes hydrophobia. The rabies virus is present in the saliva, so it can be transmitted via biting. More saliva equals higher chance of infection occurring. The virus somehow knows this, so it causes people or animals' throats to spasm really painfully whenever they try to swallow anything, which allows a maximum amount of saliva to stay in the mouth for optimal transmission of the virus. This is responsible for the classic foaming at the mouth thing that is associated with rabies because of the excess saliva and then also the hydrophobia because drinking water is also really painful due to the throat spasms. Wow, that is fascinating. I know. Thank you for that. Thank you. Our next piece of information comes from Lexi. (gasps) Our A1 since day one? Our A1. Lexi says, I was listening to the latest podcast and I actually work in a prison. So... (gasps) I'm not sure if it's the same for all states, but I know with ours, if they have court cost or child support, they do still have to pay. They are required to have jobs of some sort on the compound where they make anywhere from 25 to 60 cents an hour. They are paid monthly and half their pay goes to what they owe. The guys I work with normally make about $60 a month, so just imagine how long it would take to pay something off. Oh my God. Isn't that so upsetting? I'm yeah that's I'm upset the system is so broken I'm happy to hear from Lexi though yes hi we missed you yeah the system is really broken I mean I think that the system was built that way so it may not be broken it's just functions exactly the way it was designed to which was to keep a very select number of white men in power at all times great job guys the framers of the constitution (laughs) um my last piece of business is, did you see the news about the Zodiac Killer? No. So a group of sleuths claimed to have solved the case. Okay, great. The FBI is like, mm Okay, <laughs> fine. So it's this group of people that call themselves the case breakers. Love that. <laughs> So they think that this guy named Gary F. Post uh, was the Zodiac Killer. Um, They connected him to a murder in 1966 that's like an unofficial sixth victim of the Zodiac Killer. Her name was Sherry Jo Bates, and she was killed in Southern California. And they they only think that it's connected to the Zodiac because someone sent a Zodiac-style letter claiming responsibility for it but they never really tied him to it. And so they found this guy and like, to me, the evidence feels really picky choosy. Uh, The only weird thing is that he has these scars on his forehead from a car crash in the 50s that match exactly the wrinkles in the Zodiac Killer sketch. No. Like, it's alarming how exact it is. I'm going to send you a screenshot right now. Okay, that is eerie. Weird. Weird, right? Weird. My thing is, though, like, a composite sketch is really just a description. And, like, Mm -hmm. how likely is it that a... Like, if you... Okay, let's say that guy with those forehead wrinkles attacked you. How accurately could you describe them to 
someone who was doing a composite drawing. Okay, if I, well, here's the thing. You can't ask me that because I don't remember my own birthday. Okay, looking at the photo right now, how accurately do you think you could describe them? If I was like looking at the photo and trying to describe it to you? To me, to me drawing it, having not seen the Zodiac Killer drawing. Okay, do you want to try? I'm going to describe it to you. No, I don't. I would just say he had three lines on his forehead. One, the one in the middle was only reached the half of his to the middle of his forehead. And they all kind of came to a little bit of a point on his right side of his head. See, if I were drawing that, there's no way it would end up looking like what it actually is. You know what in I mean? our, in my defense, you're not a professional police sketch artist. <laughs> so, I don't know. You know. I don't know. I guess we should probably cover the zodiac before it gets solved, right? Oh shit! <laughs> I guess it didn't what occur to me that it would ever it? be. Just like we do with every mystery. Not a mystery goes unsolved on this here podcast. <laughs> mystery Team Inc., the podcast where nary a mystery goes unsolved. Uh, all right, that's all my business. It's the most business I've ever had in my it's life. It's the most business time of the year. That was not the note. <laughs> year. It was in the neighborhood. Are you ready for a mystery? Yeah. Okay, so I know that you're, you don't like spooks. I only like fun spooks. But I can't tell anymore if these are actually spooky or fun spooky or just like neutral. But I have um, tamed it for you and the other spook-averse listeners. Thank you. Uh, including myself. I make a podcast about murder. I don't like to be scared. (laughs) We exist. (laughs) I contain multitudes. You do. Spooky multitudes. So today I bring you the mystery of the haunting of the Union Screaming House. God damn it. Well, that there's your first problem. Don't name it the Screaming House if you didn't want it to be haunted. Feels like they were maybe asking for it. On branding alone. <laughs> name it the nice house of the living. You know? <laughs> the Union um, Sweet Nothings House. Yeah, call it Shady Acres or some bullshit. <laughs> Shady Acres. Shady Acres would be haunted, too. Okay, well, we'll workshop it. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming. (laughs) Anything's better than the union screaming house. (laughs) What if I told you that the house got the name because of the screams and it didn't scream because of the name? That feels like a goosebumps, which direction do you want to (laughs) go? That feels like a choose your own scare. It is. Do you want to choose? No. I should have made this into a choose-your-own-scare. Damn it. There's always next time. There's next time. All right. So credit for this episode goes to the 2004 book, The Uninvited, The True Story of the Union Screaming House by Stephen Lachance. Ah, a man. (laughs) 
The screaming house was just me standing in the living room. And every time a man comes in, I go, no! (laughs) I'm just a woman standing in front of a man, screaming at him to go away. (laughs) I think maybe we could regain a lot of power from the patriarchy if every time a man came near us, we just screamed. I'll do it. Not like a high-pitched scream, like something that sounds like, nah! (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) I'll beta test this. I think you will be our beta tester. I'll do it for science. I love it. I'm just like keening every time a man walks by me. Keening is exactly the word. Just wailing. (laughs) Because we don't want it to sound like we think we're in danger. We want (laughs) it to sound like... like, I'm sonically marking my boundaries. Like when they play those high notes to keep teenagers away from parking lots. Yeah. All right, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So, Union, Missouri is a small rural town 50 miles southwest of St. Louis. Ah! <laughs> In May of 2001. Oh, thank God this is a millennial mystery. Like, I'm so <laughs> oh, it excited is. that it's basically Y2K. It is. When we lay our scene. <laughs> A newly divorced single dad of three, Stephen Lachance, responded to an ad for a three-bedroom house for rent. And it's a billboard dad mystery. Like, this just (laughs) does not get better. Like, it could not get better. Oh, yeah. So he called the number, and the man on the other end of the phone said that it was a, quote, lovely home full of historic charm, and that the rent would be $600 a month. But when he arrived, there was no man... But who was phone? <laughs> Correct. So the open house was that Sunday at one o'clock. Stephen showed up early with his 12-year-old daughter, Lydia, with him. The house was white with a large front porch and two large oak trees shaded the front yard. Ah! <laughs> it looked like it was freshly painted and had been well taken care of. The door was opened by a man in overalls. Ah! Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Who told them that the landlord, Mr. Winters, wasn't there yet. Mm -mm. He always ran a little bit late. Mm -mm. So Stephen and Lydia looked around a little, and when they made it back to the kitchen, they were greeted by a man in his 70s, whom Stephen Lachance described as, quote, one of the strangest people I have ever seen. (laughs) Was he wearing a wig and a full head mask and going by Dorothy Siner? You got one out of three. One out of four. Maybe could be two out of four. He wore what Stephen describes as a cockeyed wig. Yes. I'm so glad I called that. Was he also carrying a stolen chicken salad sandwich? (laughs) He was like, sorry, I'm late. I just came from Wegmans. No, Dorothy is mute. (laughs) Oh, he was like, <laughs> he just held up a Wegman's bag, <laughs> yeah. which he like, also stole. <laughs> His face was very pale, but he had bright red lips. He wore wool shirts and sweaters no matter the weather. His name was Carl Winters, and he owned the property on which the house sat. Stephen said that Mr. Winters showed them around the house like they were on a museum tour. The house was built in the 1930s. 
It was two stories with three bedrooms, a mudroom, and a basement. The tour ended, and they immediately filled out an application. And as they handed in the application, Mr. Winters said, You do understand the responsibility that comes with living in an old house such as this? And Stephen was like, "Uh uh-huh, yep. But he had no idea what Mr. Winters was talking about. The next night, Stephen woke up to the sound of his 10-year-old son, Matthew, screaming. Matthew ran into his room and flipped on the light, and all he could say was, he was in my room. I don't like that. Stephen asked who, and all Matthew said was, a man. No. So Stephen did what he calls in his book his No Monsters Here routine, where he walked Matthew back to his room turned on the lights, did a full check of the room. Matthew pointed to the corner and he said, he was over there. I saw him. He was standing right there. No. They searched the entire apartment and once they had determined there was no man there, Stephen tucked Matthew into his bed and then went down the hall to get some water. As he turned the lights out in the hallway to go back to his room, Stephen saw the shadow of a man run by. No. He turned the lights back on, but nothing was there. And he went back to bed. So they waited all week to hear about the house. And on Sunday night, Mr. Winters called and offered them the house. Wait. Wait, where were they now? In their apartment. Oh, they were having ghosts in their apartment? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the ghosts were going to be in the house. That's part of the problem. Uh-oh. Did Just Carl follow them home? <laughs> Carl, no, Carl didn't. Something did, did. Did Carl's ghost follow them home? We don't know. I hate this. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Winters said that they should meet the next day at a restaurant for Stephen to sign the lease and pay the deposit. And Stephen was like, why don't we just meet at the house? I have to work. And Mr. Winters was like, I just have too many errands to run. And they're painting the front porch and we would just be in the way. So Stephen agreed to meet him at the restaurant. And once they had signed the lease, Mr. Winters suggested that they go to the house that Thursday at 2 for a walkthrough, and then the family could move in on Friday. And Stephen had to go to work, and he was like, the earliest I can go on Thursday is 6. And Mr. Winters reluctantly agreed, but he insisted that he had to leave the house before dark because he hated driving at night. And for no other reason. (laughs) (laughs) So Thursday evening, Stephen met Mr. Winters for a walkthrough at the house. And as they were heading upstairs, Mr. Winters casually asked, you don't believe in ghosts, do you? And Stephen was like, no. Why? And Mr. Winters said, well, I haven't heard of any such nonsense in this house, but Not everyone can live in an old house such as this. And then he said, better hurry. Not much daylight left. (laughs) Okay, literally a goosebumps, choose your own scare. He could not be worse exposition. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Literally. This man is the most poorly written foreshadowing That I've ever met. Yeah, me too. So the next day was moving day. 
They pulled up in front of their new house shortly after 2 p.m. As they were unloading boxes, a car stopped in front of their house. The passenger called out the window, Hope you get along okay here, and then drove away. They spent the first night in the house camped out in the living room together because everyone was too tired to put their beds together. And the next morning, as they unpacked, Stephen noticed something odd about the house. Every interior door had an old-fashioned hook and eyelatch on the outside of the door as if to keep something no, don't say that. in Absolutely the room. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going to have nightmares. I'm so mad. At one point that day, Stephen hung up a picture of two angels in the living room. As he turned to walk away, the picture fell to the floor. The frame and the hanger were intact, so he hung it up and turned away again. And the picture fell again. He hung it up again and walked away. He felt a rush of air, and then something hit the back of his ankles. He turned to see the picture lying at his feet. He hung it up again, and he said, stay there, damn it. And he walked away, and the picture stayed up. (laughs) At this point, Lydia called him outside to the porch. She had noticed something weird. Every person walking by the house crossed the street the second they reached the property line. They sat and watched for a while, and not one person walked in front of their house. That day they had managed to set up Lydia's bed and Stephen's bed, so Lydia went to bed in her room and the boys went to sleep in Stephen's bed with him. And the next morning, Stephen woke up to find Lydia in bed with him and the boys. And she told them that the night before, her closet door kept opening on its own and she heard boxes moving around in the other room. So she had come downstairs to be with them. That afternoon, after the kids came back from church with their grandparents, they all did some yard work together. After they mowed the lawn, Michael and Matthew went into the basement to get the garden hose to water the grass. A few minutes later, Michael came running out of the house. Matthew was not with him. And he was like, well, he should be right behind me. And then they heard screams coming from inside the house. Stephen found Matthew standing in the middle of the kitchen, shaking and pointing at the basement door. He said, there's a monster in the basement. So Stephen did his no monster in here routine. He went down in the basement and saw nothing out of the ordinary, and Matthew calmed down. That night, they went to Taco Bell for dinner, and when they got back, it was almost completely dark. As they pulled up, they noticed that every light in the house was on. And as they walked into the house, it was freezing cold. Stephen turned up the thermostat and admonished the kids for leaving all the lights on. They spent the evening in the living room playing video games and watching TV. At some point, Matthew went to use the bathroom, and then all of a sudden, they heard him screaming. He came flying back into the room, saying the monster had come after him again. He said he had left the bathroom door open so he could hear what they were all doing, and he looked up the steps and saw a monster clown come rushing down the steps toward him. Stephen once again did the no monster here search, and Matthew calmed down again, and they all went to bed. As Stephen lay awake worrying about Matthew, Lydia climbed into bed with him, mumbling something about her closet door opening again. Sometime in the middle of the night, a noise woke Stephen up. 
He sat up in bed and saw in his doorway an old man in a red flannel shirt standing there motionless, staring at Stephen and his kids. That's actually my greatest fear. Stephen rubbed his eyes and opened them again. The man was gone. He laughed to himself, thinking the kids were getting to him and went back to sleep. And over the next few days, they kept noticing that every night when they came home, all the lights were on. And Stephen made sure to check every morning that the lights were off and every night they were on. One evening, Stephen walked into the living room and felt a shock run through his body. He describes it as, quote, like an electrical shock, but different. It started deep inside my body and worked its way out. Every hair on my arms and neck stood on end. Suddenly, I felt very warm. The shock passed through me and was gone in an instant, leaving me and the living room icy cold. So Stephen told his parents about the shock, and his dad was like, well, it's got to be faulty wiring. I'll come fix it in the morning. (laughs) And the next morning, his dad came over and determined that actually there was nothing wrong with the wiring. They hung out in the living room for a little while and then suddenly heard a heavy thud upstairs. Stephen looked over at his dad, who had tears in his eyes and was holding out his arm, staring at it. He was experiencing the electrical feeling that Stephen had felt. And he said, There's, that's no electrical feeling I've ever felt before. I don't know what the hell that was. The next night, they went to dinner at Stephen's parents' house, and when they returned home, all the lights were on. They settled in to play a board game, and Stephen suggested that they have some ice cream. As they were in the kitchen, a loud crash came from upstairs. They chalked it up to an unstable stack of moving boxes, rinsed their bowls, and went into the living room to play Monopoly. Stephen noticed a flicker of movement out of the corner of his eye in the doorway of the living room. He looked again, and he saw more clearly the dark figure of a man backlit by the light from the kitchen. He was solid in form, but his form seemed to be made up of moving, churning, dark gray and black smoke or mist. Stephen looked back down at the game board, thinking that it was just he was tired and his eyes were playing tricks on him. But when he looked up, the man was still there. And to Stephen's horror, the man began to move toward them slowly at first. But then he picked up momentum until he stopped in the middle of the family room and seemed to stare directly at Stephen. Then he melted from sight. Stephen decided they were getting the fuck out of there. So he picked up his car keys and he said, why don't we go get a soda and visit grandma? And the boys began to protest, but Lydia noticed that something was wrong. And she was like, uh, yeah, guys, let's go get a soda. And they left the house. And as Stephen was locking the front door, a loud, agonized scream came from inside the house. It was so loud that the neighborhood dogs began to bark. They got to his parents' house and told them what had happened. And he said, my house is haunted. And his dad was like, yeah. And they agreed to go back and investigate in the morning. Inside the next day, everything seemed normal. Uh, Nothing had been moved or destroyed. And then a loud boom came from above them. They did a full sweep of the house and found nothing. And then Lydia called them out to the shed in the backyard. So the shed in the backyard was much older than the house itself. It was full of boxes, full of birth and death certificates, pictures, photo albums, mementos from family vacations, and other stuff that it belonged to more than one family, and it was stuff that you would only leave behind if you were leaving in a big hurry. Or if you were um, an old-timey con man 
and you had like 50 identities. <gasps> oh my God. Maybe that's why Mr. Winters wears a wig. Right? Oh. Here's my question. Is Mr. Winters um, just pulling a Scooby-Doo to get everybody's deposit? You know what? Because, <laughs> like, as soon as you run the fuck out of that house, like, you're not coming back for the deposit, right? No. And there's um, uh, there is a piece of information later in the story that backs up that theory. <laughs> so <laughs> when we get there, we'll talk about it more. Because Great. I hadn't considered this, and I think you might be a genius con man. <laughs> so Stephen's mom was like, I think you need to call Mr. Winters. This is all really weird. I like that Stephen's mom was like, call the landlord. Like, it's a he's a landlord. He's not a fucking exorcist. <laughs> I know. What do you want him to say? Yes, the, they all died here. Like, landlords won't even fix a leaky pipe. You think they're going to fix your fucking ghost problem? <gasps> and I ask, who are you going to call? <laughs> The landlord. So, Stephen went inside to call Mr. Winters. He had the phone in his hand when he noticed that a large picture of Lydia that had been hanging on the wall moments before was now sitting on the floor, leaning against the wall as Where if Where it someone- belonged. <laughs> I'm on the house's side. <laughs> TBH. Like, I've aligned myself with the house. I'm the sorry. The house is like, absolutely not. Not the aesthetic for this room. No. I'm not going to break it, but definitely don't put it here. The anti-gentrification house, like, I'm on its team. <laughs> sorry. You know Where what? Is it? Okay. Like, rural South Carolina or some Save, shit? It's oh, in no, Missouri. It's by Miz- yeah, it's in Missouri. Save that in your brain. <laughs> We're going to get back to that, too. <laughs> You're really good at this. Thank you. So the picture was leaning against the wall as if someone had purposefully taken it down and gently placed it there. So he called A Mr. de-escalation Winter- from the previous <laughs> picture attack. Yeah, the house was like, I'm so sorry. I realize that that's not your communication style. <laughs> I want to be respectful of you and your emotional well-being. So I'm going to take this fucking hideous picture of your yeah. god-awful daughter. Correct. And place it gently... Near the garbage can. Wait, where it is the daughter named Lydia? Yeah. Is this just a retelling of Beetlejuice? Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh my god. Was she also a photog with spiky bangs? <laughs> so he called Mr. Winters and he was like, Excuse me, sir, is this house haunted? And Mr. Winters was like, Um, no. I don't know why you would think that. And Stephen was like, all this haunting stuff happened, and also we found your little treasure shed. <laughs> and Mr. Winters was like, well, that all sounds like it was very scary, little guy. Like, he like basically was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he was like, the items in the shed actually belonged to a girl who used to live in the house, who he had allegedly been trying to contact to get her to come pick up her shit. We've been trying to contact you about your car. Exactly. The ghost, it's like written in blood, like seeps through the wall. We've been trying to contact you about your car's warranty. 
please, please, somebody make an image of <laughs> that written in blood on a wall. Yeah. Um, Steven said he hung up feeling, quote, more puzzled than I had been before I dialed his number. He was steps away from the phone when it rang again. It was Mr. Winters calling to say he had just remembered that some of the boxes in the shed actually belonged to a man who had lived in the house, and Mr. Winters was sure he had been a drug dealer, and he had just gotten up in the middle of the night and left everything behind because he was probably running from the police or other drug dealers. Mister, It was Mr. Winters. He had called <laughs> back because he remembered that the house was haunted. <laughs> So Stephen was like, okay. And they hung up and he was steps away from the phone when it rang again. It was Mr. Winters. And he was like, listen, I don't like know a lot about hauntings and stuff. But like if you want to maybe like have the house blessed, I could have it blessed. I have a priest on speed dial. I just like this thought is randomly occurring to me right now. But maybe I could call St. Louis University and see if they could send on that priest that did that exorcism that they made a movie out of like shot in the dark. I don't know anything about this, but maybe if you want, we could do that. Spitballing. Just spitballing here. He also said that the people living in the house before Stephen had been living in sin and that maybe their lifestyle had invited in evil spirits. And he was pretty sure that they practiced witchcraft because they burned a lot of candles. Don't blame the lifestyle, (laughs) Mr. Winters. Carl. We see right fucking through you, Carl. And by the way, Carl, maybe if you stopped hiring the same fucking discount exorcist, we wouldn't be having this problem. I'm calling my own. I'm not taking your recommendation. Yeah, absolutely not. So he said, that guy might probably gets a cut. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) So he said, maybe the house was haunted, kind of, in a way. And he offered to call a priest. And Stephen was like, no. Stop. The next day, Stephen left for a week-long business trip, and the kids went to stay at their grandparents' house. And everyone was hoping that some distance and time would help them make sense of the situation. By the end of his trip on Friday, Stephen had rationalized away everything they had experienced to the point where he was adamant that they would return to the house. Saturday passed without incident. But when they woke up on Sunday, they realized they had all slept until 5 p.m. They went to dinner at his parents' house where his brother was now staying while he was in town. And when they got home, the boys went upstairs to play in their room and Lydia joined them in their room to read. I'm going to do a warning. This is the ookiest part. Stephen dozed off in the living room and woke up to the phone ringing. It was his mom checking in. As they were talking, Stephen heard some of the interior doors rattling and called for the kids to knock it off. The doors just started rattling harder. He called again for the kids to knock it off. The doors rattled even harder. And before he could say anything else, he heard Lydia's scared voice say, Daddy, that's not us. The rattling grew louder, the temperature dropped, and then a bolt of electricity shot through Stephen, followed by a putrid smell. Then the screaming began. Softly at first, but growing louder until it was unbearably loud. Stephen heard a bedroom door slam shut. All the while, he was screaming on the phone to his mother to come help them, come get them. He dropped the receiver and the whole house began to shake. 
The doors kept slamming, and the scream continued. Over it all, he heard Lydia screaming for him. He made it to the bedroom door, and even though the hook and eye lock on the outside of the door was unlocked, he couldn't get in the door. He slammed into the door over and over until he yelled, God, please help me, and the door fell open. Matthew grabbed Michael by the hand and ran for the front door. Stephen grabbed Lydia and followed. He could feel whatever was in the house following them as they ran, slamming doors open behind them. They finally made it outside to the car, and from the street, they could hear the cacophony continuing inside the house. They drove to the top of the hill to wait for his parents, and they could see a shadowy figure moving from room to room, searching methodically for them. It reached the kitchen and melted away, and the house fell silent. Stephen's parents arrived, and they went into the house with Stephen and his brother, Josh, to pack some stuff. As they were leaving, Stephen and Josh were locking the front door when they heard a rustling above them in the tree. Josh whispered, They're in the fucking trees. And the two of them looked up to see a shadow drop down to a lower branch, shaking the tree limbs as it fell. They turned and ran, and as they did, they heard something drop to the ground behind them. They made it to the truck and got the fuck out of there. That was the last night any of Stephen's children would step foot in the house. The next day, Stephen tried to get out of the lease. I just don't understand, like, in what universe. I mean, for me, like, on day one, I would have been like, hey, (laughs) is there any way I can get out of this lease without having to pay for breaking it? Like, you can keep this month's, just give me my deposit back. Like, I don't understand why anyone in any ghost story is like, we're going to try really hard to live here. Like, why would you try? I genuinely don't know. And... There's, like, some situations where it's, like, they don't have the money to move and they don't really have anywhere else to go. 100%, it's, like, if... I understand if you're, like, oh, I don't have the money to, like, break the lease or whatever. But it seems like Steven is a man of means. Like, he just found this place in the in the paper. Like, I don't know. I just don't understand why you would try to make it work if you were, like, immediately being haunted, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, they, in any ghost story, I'm always just like, you always stayed too long. Yeah. I think Steven had the money to leave. He says in the book that he, like, in his week away, he rationalized it just, like, one day at a time. He just, like, talked himself out of it because he didn't. Yeah believe it that it was yeah. happening um i think the day the week off is key here <laughs> if they had still been being haunted for like those days then i would be like why are you still there and then the night the first night that they experienced something super fucked up they left and never came back so yeah i think for me my that. brain just works the opposite way like my brain doesn't try to rationalize doesn't try to like rationalize it my brain immediately runs wild and it makes it worse like there's no universe (laughs) where I'm convincing myself that it's like less scary than it is like I'm always way more scared than I should be so I think that's why I have a hard time understanding you know yeah and I do that in all situations where it's like if I text someone yeah I catastrophize everything immediately they either hate me or they've been kidnapped I'm not like they might be busy and I think Steven might be the kind of person who immediately thinks they might be busy. What must it be like? I bet it's so To relaxing. go through the world and just think things like, they're probably busy. Or like, 
That's not ghosts. I can't even imagine what it feels like, but I think that maybe society is powered by those people. (laughs) Um, I saw something really upsetting the other day that might ruin your life that said, um, essentially, like, capitalism thrives on the labor of insecure overachievers. Oh, man. I know. I was like, fuck. I hate that. Me too. That's me. I know. Me too. We're the reason that we can't get like a livable wage because we will just take on the other three people's jobs and do it for the same amount of money. I do it every day. I know. Fuck, I should have saved wow. this for existential nighttime radio. Yeah. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong audience. Read the room, Mags. My whole life is existential nighttime radio if it helps. <laughs> so the next day, Stephen tried to get out of the lease. And Mr. Winters told him he would only let him out of the lease if someone took over the lease. No, this is like the MLM of ghosts. It is. So Stephen and his kids went to live with his parents and he continued to pay the rent on the house until Mr. Winters' cousin took over the lease in July. And Stephen and his kids moved into a new place that had just been built. I think it was... You said July, like I was supposed to know what that means. I think it was a long time, because when is Memorial Day? May 30th. They moved in on Memorial Day weekend. So they lasted, and they lasted two weeks in that house. Mm -hmm. So, oh, so I guess they only really paid an extra, like, two weeks to month, a month. They paid for June. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was so much more dramatic in my head. I was like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) Memorial Day is in like September. Yeah. So Mr. Winter's cousin took over the lease in July and Stephen and his kids moved into a new place that had just been built. But notice that Mr. Winter's never went a day without somebody paying rent. And Stephen, Stephen probably didn't get his deposit back. Just saying. No. And do you notice that his literal system is you find a replacement so I can keep snatching fucking deposits? Like he's not even doing the work of the con man. He's literally set it up so that he gets double rent every month because he gets first month's rent and a deposit. And then he gets however long they're willing to stay, probably a month. And then the next Mm -hmm. month he gets another first month at deposit. This is a fucking scam. Holy shit. (laughs) But here's my question. How expensive are the effects that he uses to haunt the house? I think they pay for themselves. You only have to buy one projector one time. You know what I mean? But what about the crew? I feel like Mr. Winter is kind of a one-man band over here. No, because did you notice that all of the effects are super spaced out? I think it's just him running from window to window. You know what I mean? So I guess it would pay for itself, and he wouldn't have to. He would just get the gear the first time. That's what I'm saying. And he would never. Damn, that's brilliant. So, for three years after they left the house, Stephen was plagued with vivid nightmares, and he struggled with depression and extreme fatigue. Then one night at 3 a.m., he decided to write down his family's experience at the Union House. He posted it on the internet in a few places, hoping that it would be found by someone who could understand what he went through. 
The next day, he had over 100 emails from people with questions and stories. Through one paranormal forum, he met a woman named Sheila who said she wanted to drive by the house and take some pictures. One Sunday evening in May 2004, Sheila called Stephen. She had gone to the house and met the woman who lived there, Helen. And Helen wanted to talk to Stephen. And that's where we'll pick up after the break. <gasps> Talking to strangers. (laughs) Ah! Phone calls. Ah! Phone calls. Uh, Forced lunches. Ah! Oh, my God. All right. We'll be right back after these messages. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Soothing Nighttime Existential Radio. Up next, tonight's traffic report. Thank you, Kayla. It's a dark scene behind me. There's a time anomaly holding up two lanes on the southbound side of the 57 freeway, and road crews are working to clear that time anomaly, but until then, no matter where you're going, you'll always be two hours away from your destination. Back to you in the studio. Thanks, Maggie. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. The Union Screaming House. Haunted or an extra con man? (laughs) So, when we last left our con man and heroes a woman named sheila had gone to the union house and spoken to the woman who was currently living there named helen and sheila had told stephen that helen wanted to talk to him helen lived in the union house with her second husband charlie their daughter kelly and her grandson unclear whose child the grandson is they each had children from other marriages Helen lived there from 1935 until 1940. Ooh. What happened in 1940? Nothing. She's just a ghost. Oh, did she die in 1940? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. She she didn't just, like, move out and then decide, I got to get back in there. I don't know. So Sheila had sent Helen Stevens' post and... A few days after speaking to Sheila, Stephen called Helen. And Helen's story matched Stephen's almost identically, even down to Mr. Winters insisting they sign the lease in a restaurant and refusing to go into the house at night. Helen had also experienced horrifying things in the house. I'm going to give you a highlight reel. Uh, The gutters apparently caught on fire all the time. Uh, One night, a police car showed (laughs) up. That's some Aleister Crowley stuff. I know. (laughs) One night it was a, a magical duel. It was a magical duel, and they're like, "You gotta just clean your gutters, I'm like, you gotta man. Clean this out. Yeah, you gotta clean them out. <laughs> a lot of dry, especially in, in old there. houses like this. Mr. Winters was not wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility. Didn't he tell yeah. you? He said it when we signed the lease, but we thought he just meant it was haunted. <laughs> I didn't know I had to clean the gutters. Hmm. Um. Something had pushed her grandson down the stairs, 
Um, and when she left the house. Something with a sense of humor. <laughs> He's a child. So it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Helen said when she left the house, she always came home and the lights were on. Just like Steven. Consistent. <laughs> Consistency is key in a fake haunting. So Stephen and Helen arranged to meet at the library the next day to do a little research. Uh, they asked around at the library for information about the house, and it seemed like the librarians were being purposefully unhelpful, and they like flatly dismissed the old wives' tales of that part of town being haunted. And they, Stephen says that he saw one of the librarians like walking swiftly ahead of them like pulling certain books off the shelves so everybody's in on it was the librarian also wearing a wig and did did they look suspiciously like carl winters (laughs) i love the idea of mr winters playing everyone in town (laughs) yeah and for tonight's entertainment i will be playing all the parts (laughs) it's just shares west side story Here's the thing. I like you're losing my like the suspension of disbelief. I, it start to lose it when it's like the librarians because are the librarians getting a cut? What do they fucking care? I have if no you know idea. That it's haunted or not. I have no also, idea. Sorry, Loki. That that part of town is haunted. Well, once wait, again, just listen. That part. Okay. That part checks out. I was going to say, is this like a Lake Lanier situation? A little bit. Yeah. So they went to the courthouse to look for deeds. And Stephen says that each time they left an office, that person would call ahead to the next person and warn them what Stephen and Helen were doing and that it seems like everyone was hiding something. It's not goosebumps, Stephen. Also, just for the record, y'all, I know that it makes the story more compelling And if you're writing a short story about a family of witches like I did, it's helpful. (laughs) But you don't actually need to go anywhere to, like, look at deeds to confirm anything. Because, like, any real estate agent can get all of the – everyone who's ever held title on a house, like, the history of the title going back, I mean, basically as far back as it goes. So, like, you really don't need to do that. I I understand that it makes it, like, national treasure, which is just, like, a much better story. (laughs) I know. But I'm just, just, just for you in your real life, like if you need to do that, just call a real estate agent. They will talk to you literally all day because they'll do anything to make a contact. (laughs) Um, And you You just say, I need you. You will end up on a mailing list, but it'll be worth it. Correct. So eventually they learned the history of the land on which the house was built. The house was part of the property of Army Officer Captain John T. Cromwell, and the house itself stood where his slave quarters had been. Called it. it really is. You nailed it. Why do you think? Yeah. Correct. So Cromwell had been an officer in the Union Army. He started the first Missouri militia in the Civil War. He was the town's sheriff. He was also the town's judge. He was a 33rd degree mason, and he was head of the town's morals committee, which was responsible for passing judgment on anyone who committed, quote, transgressions. Yeah, that's why he had two big fucking oak trees in his front yard. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but 
That's why Sorry. I love those traits. So one the the book outlines some like fucked up shit he did, but one time he apparently lined up four hundred Confederate soldiers and executed them one by one. And by the time he was done, the town was blanketed in smoke. Wait, so he was a Union general? Well, who had slaves? Um, yes. Okay. He basically was like, he fought for, he was a Union soldier, but he, it was like, kind of like an unspoken secret that he participated in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And the way Stephen describes it, he like, wasn't necessarily... He says, we're unsure if he was a Southern sympathizer or just a spineless opportunist who hedged his bets so that whomever won, he would still profit. Okay. Copy that. So, you know. So a con man with a shed full of birth certificates. Go on. Exactly. Yeah. I have a question, too. Did we look this guy up? Like, is this corroboratable? You know what? Yes, I... I looked... I found a couple articles about him, but only on... um, websites that we're talking about this house so let's look him up right now just you didn't find the deeds no absolutely not well it's not coming up okay so he made up an army man perhaps he made up an army man (laughs) i'm just saying i mean you're not wrong did the librarians hide the books from all of us like (laughs) and they scrubbed the internet yeah are we all getting played here Mm -hmm. so After Helen and Stephen met, Helen's daughter Kelly began to have severe mood swings and she began to self-harm. They later found out that she had been hearing voices that told her to hurt or kill other people. And Stephen decided that he was going to help Helen find help. They found... A woman named Betty, who was a medium, who gave ghost tours at a haunted brewery in St. Louis. And Betty came over to the house and determined there was a spirit of a man there who made it very clear he did not want them in the house. And there was also a vortex in the basement through which spirits were able to freely come and go. She said Helen should definitely move, and Helen was like, no. And she was like, okay, then definitely stay away from the basement. So... Helen continued to be aggressively haunted, and every time Stephen saw her, she looked more exhausted and run down. Then she started waking up with bite marks on her arms. So Stephen and Helen decided to open the house every weekend to anyone who claimed they could help, which is an insane thing to do, but... So they opened the house and every Saturday they would have like ghost hunters and like psychics and mediums and seances and like all these people just traipsing in and out of the house. Not a single one of them contributed anything and none of them were ever heard from again. Then Helen's health began to deteriorate and a weird thing started happening where before a paranormal event, her blood pressure would spike, but her pulse would drop below 40 beats per minute which is strange then Helen told Stephen that she started to feel compulsions to kill her husband Charlie and that she was afraid of Kelly her daughter and then she started having nightmares and waking up to horrible smells and every day she was more and more scared that she was going to hurt Charlie or Kelly or herself 
um, they didn't have enough money to move. And Stephen and Helen kind of felt at this point that they had an obligation to put a stop to the whole thing. So everybody stayed in the house. They kept trying to find help, and in June 2005, they made contact with world-famous demonologist John Zaffis, who from this point on offered advice and comfort to Helen and Stephen as they tried to fight whatever con vortex was living in the basement. One night at 4 a.m., Helen called Stephen, and they talked for hours, and then suddenly her tone shifted, and she said, that motherfucker Charlie is cheating on me. And then she went silent. And then in her normal voice, she said, what am I going to do? My whole life is falling apart. And Stephen was like, excuse? And they talked until 10 a.m. when Helen abruptly said, I have something to do. I'll call you later. And hung up. Helen, no. She called back a while later and told Stephen this story. After they hung up, Helen had taken two knives and driven to Charlie's work. He thought she was going to take him to lunch, and instead, she parked the car by a lake in the park and very slowly and softly said, So, Charlie, you've been fucking around on me. He denied that he had been cheating on her, but she kept accusing him, and finally, his denial made her so angry that she pulled out one of the knives and started attacking him. Somehow, Charlie managed to get out of the car and ran back toward his job. Helen tried to hit Charlie with the car, but she missed multiple times, so she just gave up and went home, thinking she would have her chance when Charlie came back from work. Later that night, John Zaffis got a call from Helen that would cause him to later describe her as, quote, off the scale. Charlie didn't come home that night, and Helen woke up with fresh bruises on her neck and bite marks on her back, and she called Stephen in a panic, and he rushed over. When he got there, he walked by Kelly and her friends outside the house and noticed that they were all snarling at him. And he, like, walked by them, like... Why? Because he's having an affair with Helen and scared <laughs> Charlie away? <laughs> Probably. Um, so he walked in the house and he found Helen catatonic in the living room. He started to guide her to the door and the house started up with all the banging again. They got to the front door, and when they opened it, they found Kelly on the other side of it, still snarling. And she said, where are you going, bitch? Aren't you going to give me some money? Ah, teens! <laughs> Run! And Stephen was like, Kelly, move. <laughs> this is my interpretation of the text. Yeah. And Kelly was like, give me some money, you fucking bitch. And Stephen was like, Kelly, get out of the fucking way. So Kelly got out of the way, and they walked past Kelly's still snarling friends to the car, and Stephen took Helen straight to the emergency room where she was promptly admitted to a psych unit. As he was driving home from the hospital, Stephen was behind a big white truck as he was going up a freeway on-ramp. He looked down to check his speed, and when he looked back up, he was no longer behind the white truck, and he was going the wrong way on the opposite side of the freeway. Oh, my God. He hit that time anomaly. He hit the time anomaly. Uh, he managed to turn around and get off the freeway, and it occurred to him that perhaps something was trying to kill him. So Stephen eventually found a priest to help Helen, a man named Father Paul. Is that an anagram of Carl Winters? <laughs> 
I will be playing all the parts. <laughs> it's like Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Mm-hmm. So Helen was released from the hospital on a Tuesday, and Stephen took her to see Father Paul that Wednesday morning. Father Paul was a psychic priest. In my head, he's super hot. <laughs> Just because of Fleabag? Hmm. Yes. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Okay, so as I tell you the rest of the story, let's all collectively imagine Father Paul as Andrew Scott. A hot psychic priest. Mm. So Stephen picked Helen up for their meeting, and he said she looked healthy for the first time in a long time. They went to their meeting with Father Paul in his office in a small house next to a church on a hill. Father Paul listened to their stories and determined that the events that had happened over the years on the land on which the house was built had opened up a portal for the demonic, and that, quote, when you get one demon, you get many. He said that Helen was suffering from demonic oppression, which is not quite possession, but could easily lead there. Then Father Andrew Scott asked if he could bless them. He placed his hand on Stephen's head and began to pray. Stephen felt like he couldn't breathe. He saw white flashes of light, and then he felt himself relax for the first time in years. And Helen told him later in the car that she had immediately felt better. And Helen said, I think he might be able to help. Where was he during open Saturdays? Where was he during the open call? The Emmys. (laughs) (laughs) So... Fast forward to Halloween weekend, 2005, 8.30 a.m. Stephen is awoken by a loud pounding on the door. He looked through the peephole. Sorry, I had to change tenses. He looked through the peephole and saw Helen, eyes black, banging on the door saying, Let me in, Stephen. Let me the fuck in. She was holding something behind her back. Stephen's cats got mad. Side note, sorry. Stephen, up until, this is the end of the book. Stephen has yet to mention that he had cats. And then all of a sudden he's like, my cats warned me. And I'm Yeah, just where like, were they when, wait, where were they when he was living in the house? I don't know if he didn't have the cats in the house, but, or I just have poor reading comprehension skills. <laughs> But I remember, you would remember cats. reading that sentence and being like, what fucking cats? Yeah, I agree. So just letting you know, this is the kind of reliability we have with this narrator. So Stephen's cats got mad and their reaction made him think he probably shouldn't open the door. Helen left and Stephen called Kelly, who said she would call Helen. You'll call now. I'll call now. What's the forecast for tomorrow? <laughs> Going to be another scorcher. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly called back and said she had spoken to Helen. She said, if she comes back, do not let her in. She doesn't sound like herself. She has a gun and she's sitting outside the union house. So Stephen called Helen and she answered with, what do you want, you goddamn son of a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> Which is how I'm going to answer the phone every time you call me from now on. 
I just imagine like a demon possessed woman, like, but the de- like the demon is getting frustrated that like the this is it's two thousand four, but like I'm imagining now, and it's like the demon can't get like the face <laughs> recognizing technology to work on the phone. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to get I pulled my mask open. down. I don't know why this is COVID <laughs> demon. I pulled my mask down. It's still not reading it. Like, Siri. Again, this is a story that could only take place in 2004. Because Siri, now. call Carl Winters. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. You don't have any mothers in your phone. Do you want me to search the web? No, <laughs> bitch. God damn it. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. I don't have any bitch goddammit in your phone. In your contacts. Uh, I love Calling that. Applebee's. No, goddammit, Siri, not till tonight. <laughs> the, the demon has dinner plans at Applebee's. Mm-hmm. So she told Stephen she was holding a gun to her head, and Stephen eventually convinced her to put the gun down. And at that point, they were still on the phone, and Kelly arrived and, like, knocked on the car window. And Helen said, Did you fucking call her, you prick? And Stephen said, No, Helen, you called her. And Helen said, I called her? What am I doing here? And at this point, it came out that Helen had been having blackouts since the Christmas before. And she told Stephen that at first she was losing an hour or two, but now she was losing days at a time. And Stephen and Kelly were like, you have to go back to the hospital. And so she relented and Stephen called Daddy Paul, Father Paul. (laughs) You'll call now. (laughs) I'll call now. So Helen began a treatment plan of therapy and sessions with Father Paul. I'll take a session She's winking. with Father Paul. <laughs> um, and she would talk on the phone with John's office as well. And Father Paul suggested to Stephen that perhaps his experiences with the house could help him help other people who were having similar problems. And John Zaffis said to him, If you walk away now after waging this battle, the demons will come after you sevenfold. John, nobody needs your pessimism here. I know. They were finally about to walk away from this literal abusive paranormal relationship. And he was like, maybe just like stay and help. Just stay. John. We're not all fucking martyrs, okay? <laughs> you want you go stay in the fucking house. Well, unfortunately, Stephen now works as a demonologist, basically. But he rejects that label and he calls himself, quote, a man of faith who helps those in need. But he basically goes around and like helps other people with hauntings. So he didn't get out of the game. Uh, In 2008, he published a sequel to Uninvited called Blessed Are the Wicked. Surprise. He's written so many books. The 2008 book was about the lingering effects of the haunting on him and his family and Helen and everyone involved. So uh, I guess it followed them around. 
I haven't read the book, but that's what I'm surmising. Also, did no one else, like, think it was weird that a woman started experiencing, like, symptoms of a hereditary mental illness around the same time that her daughter did around, like, at the age of onset? Like, no one else was like, oh, I wonder if maybe this is a hereditary mental illness and it's, like, been triggered by the stress of dealing with her daughter's onset of a mental illness. Like, it's not that weird. Uh, Yeah, 100%. It is very interesting to me that even when they, when she was admitted to the psych ward, they were still like, thank God she's in the psych ward to deal with this haunting. Yeah. Like, and I then know- she came back and was, like, a lot better after having, like, some, like, any mental, yeah. like, health services. And then deteriorated when she was out, and they were like, must be ghosts. <laughs> yeah, it's that's like the huge, that, that's a very apt metaphor, I feel, for this like entire country and system. Yeah. Uh, Stephen claims on his website that, quote, in 2012, in an unprecedented move, the Roman Catholic Church issued a 156-page report calling his haunting a clear case of demonic infestation, oppression, and possession. Now, I was unable to find this report. Or any record of the army man. Or any record of the army man. On the Facebook page for the Union Screaming House, it has its own page. In the way that, like... A famous dog has its own page like <laughs> it's not like the society for research into the union screaming house it's like the union screaming house has a page yeah posted what they say is the first five sections of the report to quote give you an idea what a report from the catholic church is like the report is like the report heavy air quotes is very suspicious so the, they say that the demonic angels in the house were invited there by several individuals, one of whom was the landlord. Carl, no. You're kidding. <laughs> it says that Stephen's wife left him, not because she was unhappy and never wanted to have children, but because she was mixed up in something demonic and she didn't know how to handle it or get out of it. I thought he was divorced before they went to the house. He was. Right. So Mm -hmm. he's just, maybe he's just haunted by his own bad choices. So the report says that (laughs) Helen invited something demonic into their marriage. And that's why he was being, and then I guess maybe. Helen, but what about Steven? No, sorry, his wife. His wife brought something demonic into their marriage. And then I think like that combined with. The, the I stand the by what I said. It sounds like he was just haunted by his own bad choices. Ooh, that's very likely. It also doesn't read like an official report from anything. Like at a couple points in the report, it uses caps lock, <laughs> which I think. <laughs> and which it's I also- think, uh, if I remember the Bible correctly, which I think I do. It it says it advises against caps lock because that's like the internet version of screaming. It just feels like... Am I just thinking of (laughs) driver's ed for the web? Yes. It just feels so unprofessional. That's because... That's because Stephen wrote it. I know! (laughs) 
I know. He's a professional author. You'd think he could have gotten it together. It really reads like, um, it reads the same as the book. Mm -hmm. Have we even corroborated Helen's existence? I know John thinks he's met her, but. Mm, You know what? No. Do we know if Helen or Kelly or any of these 80s names that he took out of a book are real? No. Okay. I'm going to leave you with this. In December 2005, Stephen saw that the exact same ad that he had responded to was running in the newspaper again. Time anomaly. <laughs> um, and not long after reading the ad, he got an email from Mr. Winters saying that a new family had moved into the house, a family with young children. And when he had tried to get out of the lease and Mr. Winters was like, someone has to take over for you, he had made a point of saying, you can't let a family with children move into this house. Like, it's fucked up and terrifying and you can't do that to more children. And Mr. Winters' cousin had children. So Stephen was, like, not happy about it. Apparently, this is what the email said. I'm going to read it in a spooky landlord voice. (laughs) The new children are having fun running around upstairs and screaming as children do when they're having fun. But I bet the parents will stop that soon when they finish moving in and get unpacked. When the kids first got there, they immediately ran up the stairs, as little tykes do. They began running in and out of the rooms, screaming and laughing with joy. It was so nice to hear, quote, little angels screaming. I hope their guardian angels will watch over them, Clarice. Yeah. It was Mr. Winters all along. Absolutely. And Stephen ends the book with this. Or he's a ghost him fucking self. Probably. It would explain the wool sweaters. Oh, is he the devil in disguise? Well, listen, this is what Stephen says. I believe that not only did Mr. Winters know what was going on in the house, he was feeding it families. Fresh meat for the lion hiding in the cage. And his favorite was the children. Lions don't really hide in cages, but I get the sentiment, and (laughs) I feel that it's probably true. Yeah. But the monster was capitalism, and... (laughs) (laughs) And... Yeah. And greed. Yes. And he was feeding it money. Yes. You're absolutely right. And that's the story of the Union Screaming House. Spooky. Spooky. The spoo- it actually was spooky, um, yeah. but I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a good job. It was spooky, and the spookiest part is that it was capitalism all along. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> the moral, moral of the, of the story. story is that there should be no landlords. <laughs> landlords are bad. Capitalism is bad, and we need better mental health services. That's it. Like, a priest and an author with a buck to make should not be responsible for that woman's mental health. No. And it's interesting because she did end up just, like, going to a therapist and getting better if she's real. So. Helen, if you're out there and you're real, I'm happy for you. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) For getting the kind of help you need. Yeah. And Steven, you should have found an adult (laughs) instead of writing a book 
He's written a lot of books, and he's also done a lot of appearances on, like, you know, shows that what we call hotel TV. Yeah. <laughs> like, show, like 42-minute Discovery Channel shows where they're, like, tonight on Haunted Homes. Steven was a single dad who moved into a house in Union, Missouri. Like, it's that kind of narration. He's been yeah. on a lot of those. Yeah. Anyway, that's my spooky Whoa, mystery. Good job. Spooky. Spooky. Guys, we'll be back in two weeks with a Halloween special, and I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited, and it won't be this spooky. No, it's going to be goofy, but I think you'll like it. It'll be gooky. <laughs> spooky. <laughs> um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the buck up. Spooches. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Good night. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.